Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. At Music Biz, we decided that continuing to provide a forum for our community to come together and support each other was the most important thing we could do right now. So we started a Zoom chat series called Music Biz Live. Today's episode is the audio from my chat about mental health and leadership. Many things are still uncertain, but one thing's for sure, we're all in this together. As always, support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to mental health experts about their responses to the COVID crisis. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Al Andrews of Porter's Call, Dr. Chaim Newman of Thrive, Ty Sticklorius of Friends at Work, and Alana Zivkovich of Work. So Al, I want to start with you. Can you just go ahead and share with us Porter's Call's mission? and how you guys got started and what you do. Sure. Our mission is to come alongside recording artists with counsel and support. It's a safe and confidential place for any artist to come to deal with the issues they face in this crazy vocation of theirs. All our services are free, and we probably see around 40 to 45 different artists each week. We're based in Nashville, some in person and some online. It started about 19 years ago when I moved to Nashville and started a private counseling practice. And, you know, you're in Nashville and all of a sudden your practice is filled up with music folks. And then I realized that all the artists I saw couldn't come regularly. And most of them in the early days of their careers couldn't afford me. You know, I've never seen an artist that could come every Tuesday at 11. That just doesn't happen. (laughs) When I went to counseling, that's when I went. I went every week until I was sort of done and then put a pause and a few years later went back. But I went at the same time and I realized that not only they couldn't afford me and they couldn't come regularly and we couldn't get a pace going, if you will, but I think artists struggle with what everybody struggles with, but it's kind of turned up to 11, if you will. There's just more of it. But I I guess I saw some uniqueness in that the struggles with too much fame or not enough fame, too much money or not enough money, that distance between who everyone believes you are, who everyone fantasizes you are, and who you know you are, and how are you going to bridge that distance or are you going to bridge that distance? And there are just a lot of issues. And because they're public, a lot of they held a lot of secrets and didn't know who to talk to about them because a lot of people talk if they talk to them. And so I decided that I thought they needed something different. So I looked around and couldn't find it. And I, real quickly, I thought I'd go to five different labels and just say, hey, why don't you buy a day of my counseling practice and then give it to your artist for free? 
So the very first person I went to, I was going to go to five. I said, you guys are spending millions of dollars for getting people out there and successful. Would you like to spend some money on their hearts and souls? And this guy, his name is Peter York, who's president of Sparrow Records at that time, said yes, which shocked me. I didn't know what to do because I didn't have a business plan. But they did it. They tried it for three months, let artists come free, artists from any label. And something began to happen. They saw artists had a place to go for help. They were scared to go often to their managers or scared to go to the label, but they found a place where they could go to help that was confidential. And soon it grew into a nonprofit that's supported by people who make money from healthy artists. So we've been doing it for almost 20 years and obviously feel like there's a place for that sort of help for artists no matter where they are on the spectrum. So we love what we get to do. Have you guys pivoted now to doing online studies this COVID-19 crisis? Yes. Yes, we are. We've been doing it since the beginning. And everybody that works here says they do it, but it's just a little tough to make that connection and to keep it. But we're busier than ever, as you can imagine, because people are home. And there's a lot going on that they need to talk about. So, Ty, I invited you here because you run a management company called Friends at Work. And I think just stopping right at the title of the company is very telling. You know, those of us who run companies in this moment in history are particularly challenged, right? Because there are plenty of people are having to lay off. Plenty of people are having to furlough people. You know, there are all sorts of different conditions. You know, I've read some articles with you where you talk about what I say all the time, which is we're all in this together. So I wanted you to just talk a little bit about how your attitude towards the people that you work with, because you certainly seem to consider them friends. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about the name and why we named the company that. It comes really from my Quaker background, the Friends Quaker School in Philadelphia that I went to from first through 12th grade. We were graded on concern for the community. Every week we were in the community helping others. I remember being sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, working in women's shelters, working with autistic children, working in parts of downtown Philadelphia. And that was my favorite part of the curriculum was actually being out and being of service. And so that Quaker practice really stayed with me. Even once I went to business school, even once I got into the music business and was told, you're crazy, you shouldn't think about your company that way. A lot of people told me the name Friends at Work when I was like, this should be the name, that it was really stupid and not cool, and then I'm too nice. And anyway, you reshape things in the way that you imagine them to be. And I knew that the music business seemed like a place where we needed more community, more people watching out for each other, and better leadership. And so that's the name of the company. And we really do focus a lot of our time on managing artists, managing impactors, not just musicians, but also people who are impacting the world in really positive ways who need an infrastructure and need a team. But we manage John Legend, and he's been my biggest partner for about 14 years now. I've been his manager and his film and TV production partner, and we work together on a number of things. And I think when you have an artist like John, and you see that you can leverage your platform to do great things in the world, that's when you realize, well, let's scale this for other people. Like, let's do this with all artists and create boundaries so that artists that we work with know that there's an expectation that they are going to engage in the world and leverage their platform in positive ways. 
and we can help them do that so they're not too overwhelmed by it. And I think it actually helps with the mental health of an artist's arc of their career, which can be quite overwhelming. I think it helps when they, you know, let's say they don't get the big pop hit on the radio for that next single. Like at least they have a deeper purpose and a sense of what they can accomplish in the world. And I think as the sort of rise and fall of fame and all of that happens, they, they can kind of stay very clear that they're also here to influence people in positive ways. So it's become a big part of our identity. It's always been a part of my work. And now more than ever, I feel like I'm seeing some of my peers and their management companies hiring heads of social impact, thinking more about the role of a manager as needing to watch out for the mental health of their artists. And it certainly feels like a huge part of the business and somewhat of an elephant in the room that hasn't gotten enough attention through the years. So I'm glad that now we're seeing more management companies and more leaders in the music business thinking about how do we take care of each other in a better way. Alana, you guys published uh, 12 Actions Working Now Leadership During COVID-19 on your blog, which I think is really, really amazing. You're talking about best practices of leaders. And I think that it's important to talk about this because we need to have some guidelines and some understanding of what works for people. Because right now, I think people are feeling super unstable. I think it's the instability that's difficult. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys found? Yeah, absolutely. So right when COVID hit, right when most of the stay-at-home orders were going out and that sort of thing hit here, I should say, in the U.S., we recognize we're an executive coaching firm. We do team performance coaching and executive coaching. And we recognized that this was a time that our people were really going to need us. You know, there was a great opportunity here, kind of what Ty just shared. We're not alone, you know, and there was an opportunity to connect people and help them help each other simply by providing that. So we started running these proactive leadership during COVID-19 groups and we ran them for a few weeks and the results were like earth shattering. If you weren't used to this sort of thing, for those on the call that have done lots of different group type of engagements, you're probably quite used to it. But, you know, we would have SVPs from multi-billion dollar companies and startup entrepreneurs, which had a team of one, and they'd be talking and they'd be experiencing the same issues and having the same type of questions and the same type of struggles. Because this experience right now, while it looks a little different, it takes on different, you know, shapes and sizes, but we really are all in it together. And there's so much unknown and so much almost imposter syndrome that starts to creep in where we all go, "Uh uh-oh, like, am I not doing this right? (laughs) You know, my big message is like, yeah, no, none of us are. Like anyone that like believes 100%, they're like, I have this thing nailed. Like they're either really disconnected or just not quite honest with themselves quite yet, right? Because this is so unprecedented. And so the blog, those 12 actions that are working now, that was simply us regurgitating the wisdom that we heard, sort of synthesizing it and looking at the themes from all these different calls from people across industries, across country, you know, in really different settings. And the themes that came out were really clear. It was the same, you know, couple subset of actions that leaders were taking all over the place that were really putting them and their companies and their teams in the right position. And probably many haven't read the blog yet, but I will tell you, one of the main things was putting your own oxygen mask on first. You know, there was a definite recognition that right now, you know, this this entire experience is kind of a global trauma of some sorts. And we're all going to be responding to it differently on different days. You know, some days I wake up and I'm that person that's like optimistic and energetic and like ready to tackle the world and seeing all the silver linings, you know, and 
Other days I wake up and I'm like, oh, I do not like this. Where are my people? I, I do not like my house. I want to leave. <laughs> and so we're all sort of experiencing these different types of trauma response. And so the importance of putting our own oxygen mask on first, you know, and of really taking care of well-being as a predecessor right now to productivity and doing that for ourselves. And then when we're in the position of a leader, finding ways to do that for our team and those that we interact with as well has been really huge for those that are rising to this challenge really well. So I was really excited to see the topic of today's panel and excited to see what we discuss. Yeah, I think your 12 points are so interesting and I love it. Number two is over-communicate. And I think that's interesting. Ty, I wanted to throw that to you too, because I don't know that we're always told that in leadership positions. You know, I think we're told a lot of times, oh, you don't want to tell the staff that. You don't want to get them afraid. You know, don't make them panic. So I love seeing over-communicate as number two, because I was like, that's like a new direction, right? Yeah, I think that transparency and the sort of Brene Brown notion of like, it's okay to express vulnerability. It's okay for the leaders of a company to talk about how hard this is for them. I think the more I let people into my own sort of situation, the more they feel like they can trust me with theirs. And yeah, we, we really like practice that type of over-communicating radical sort of vulnerability. We're checking in on all our people every day and also just sharing like when you need help, like real help you know, just making sure you've got a network to help you through it and making sure people know that like, we're safe, like we're going to ride this out, we're going to be okay. And I've got you. And, you know, I know it's not easy to work from home, especially like mommies or dads who have little ones wandering in and out in the middle of the workday. Or so the more we're kind of getting through it together and staying on Zooms, and we have all our meetings still, I feel like the more we're going to get through it and we're all just laughing through some of the absurdity and the vulnerability of it too, which humor has been helping quite a bit. Ty, just to jump on what you were saying, I think one of those things, the way we've been looking at this is in some ways, this virus is, is almost like the great equalizer in the sense it doesn't matter how successful you are, how unsuccessful, how rich, how poor, like how healthy, how unhealthy, this thing comes for all of us equally. And in some ways, what that's done is there's nobody who's invulnerable anymore. You can't pretend that you're invulnerable. And so that notion of being in a leadership role or being an artist, you know, overseeing your team or whatever it might be, but approaching that from that perspective of, hey, we kind of all need to be honest here about the fact that we're vulnerable. And that makes us all equals in some way, which allows us to connect, cope better, support each other better, which is probably at root, like, Brene Brown or the people in acceptance and commitment therapy world would tell you is a much healthier model anyways of working together than the original model of people pretending that they were invulnerable. Yes. You know, I I was talking to an artist the other day who called wanting to talk about anxiety, but then he began to say, to your point, he said, you know, if I had cancer, I would have somebody to talk to about cancer. If I was experiencing depression. There are people I could talk to about depression, but there's nobody I can talk to that knows what they're talking about when it comes to this pandemic. Nobody's been through it. And as we began to talk, it kind of moved toward your point. We're all on level ground here. Nobody knows. And so we have to find our way together. And that actually calmed his anxiety. And in a strange sort of way that we're in this together and nobody knows what they're doing. So we're figuring it out, locking arms. So, Yeah, no, I would echo that. And it's in the blog as well. There was this sentiment amongst leaders of, you know, 
people come to a leader for answers. And right now we have to get really comfortable really fast with not knowing. And there's this universal nature of not knowing that is actually very bonding if we let it be. Yeah. And that's really scary for leaders. You know, I mean, if we're talking about mental health, right, you know, we want to support our artists, we want to support our employees, but leaders need support too, because we're the ones who have to be signing the checks and making sure that people have money coming in the door. And, and we don't know, I mean, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what the future holds. We don't know how long this is going to last. So I do think that's an important part, just the ability to connect on a human level for everyone. That was Nothing is Easy by Marnie Stern. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Al Andrews of Porter's Call, Dr. Chaim Newman of Thrive, Ty Sticklorius of Friends at Work, and Alana Zivkovich of Work. So Dr. Newman, I wanted to have you talk to us because your situation is really quite interesting. You started out to do a survey on mental health well-being in the touring industry. And then right in the middle of implementing that survey, COVID-19 hit. So you guys kind of pivoted your whole focus to handling this situation. Do you want to tell us what you decided to do? Sure. So just a little bit of background. So prior to the research side, so I've been running a private practice seeing artists and touring professionals and crew members in the industry for better part of a decade now. Born out of that, we launched uh, the Tour Health Research Initiative, or Thrive, which was really meant to take mental health care and just thinking about mental health in the industry to a different level where there are a lot of sort of organizations that have popped up thinking about mental health, trying to provide mental health services and initiatives for artists, touring members, crew members, people who work in the background of the industry. But most of it has been based on anecdotal evidence, on people's personal experience working in the industry, and not so much on really grounded research in the same way that in most of the rest of the psychological world, we don't engage interventions without really testing them and randomized control trials to make sure that we're delivering treatments and approaches that are really effective and that are proven scientifically to be effective. And there's kind of been a bit of a lack of that in the music industry, in part because 
The music industry, as we know, is, is closed. It's not accessible to the average person in the public, certainly behind the scenes of it. And it's not accessible to the average clinicians and researchers. So there just hasn't been a lot of research on that. And so when we launched Thrive last year, the goal was from those of us, you know, and I've been in the industry in one way or another for about 20 years. And my co-founder, Ryan George, has worked as a tech for Jack White and back in a myriad of other bands and has been in the industry forever. And it was really to go from the inside and be able to do comprehensive scientific research to understand the mental health issues in the industry in the sort of proper data-driven way, and then to be able to build interventions based on the data to understand what the real issues and problems are in a very global way for people in the music industry, and to be able to provide services accordingly. Started doing that in this first major survey, launched on February 2nd. We had over a 1,000 people respond and take the survey in the first three weeks, which already made it one of the largest pieces of research in the history of the music industry. We were looking at months and months, potentially, of data collection, and then COVID-19 hit which basically forced us to pause for kind of two reasons, which is you don't want to ask people about their job happiness and their job experience when they're in the midst of the most destabilized two weeks of their life where they've just lost their work, their future is in question, their finances often for many of them are totally unstable, their living situations. And it's sort of like not a great time to get really accurate data on as a whole, what does the industry feel about different components of the touring experience? So we were worried about skewing the data that way by asking people right in the midst of the beginning of the chaos. And, you know, one of the things I always uh, raised in the tradition I was raised in, you know, there's this notion of, uh, I think ethics of the father says, uh, in a a place where one identifies a lack of people, stand up and, and be a person. And that our resources are meant to be adapted to where we see crisis and where we see a void. And all of a sudden watching all of the artists and all of the crew members that I work with and that I know sort of destabilized really quickly. We sort of felt like our skill sets as clinicians and mental health workers needed to shift for the moment from doing research to actually working uh, directly with, you know, in a frontline way with those who are suffering and struggling. And so Zach Bohr and I, Zach is one of the founders of Backline.care, which is a wonderful organization that also provides mental health resources for people in the music industry. So Zach and I basically launched this series. It was originally meant to be one or two support groups, which has now turned into eight weeks worth of support groups and will be ongoing indefinitely to basically provide a safe, supportive space for people in the music industry to be able to come together twice a week to just talk about what they're feeling. And kind of like some of you had mentioned, with no real answers or solutions. You know, we can't tell people when it's going to end. We can't tell people sort of like how to stay healthy. Like, but what we can do is allow you a safe space to vent what it is that you're going through and have other people sort of empathize and listen and support and care. And it's become this amazing community of people from all over the industry and really all over the world, artists, crew members, agency, label, really every aspect who just gather together kind of twice a week to hang out and talk about how difficult this has been for them in all these different ways emotionally. I'm curious, do you do it like this? Yes. Like everybody kind of joins in or how does that work? So what's interesting is the first week we did it, we had, I think the first two sessions had about 240 participants in total, which is kind of a bit overwhelming for a support group. And you'd have sort of most people in the background with their cameras off 
just okay. listening. You know, most people kind of didn't participate. I think people were like feeling it out. And a couple of courageous souls would get up and, you know, share about what their struggles have been. And what's happened is now over the weeks, now that again, tonight will be the eighth week we begin, and it's every Monday and Thursday, we've got about a core group of 20 to 30 people that pretty much show up every week. And what's happened is every person's camera's on. Every person is sharing like the intimate details of like their loneliness, what's going on in their relationships, their struggles. And it's become in a weird way, like a family almost a community of people. And so, so the engagement is kind of like we have, it's very informal. There's no agenda. There's no, we don't run it in a structured way. Might give a quick intro and then we just let people share and it organically has turned into this really powerful thing. I'm just thinking out loud, but you know, we have music cares in the music space, which is a wonderful organization that does provide services and immediate help for people in crisis situations in the industry. But that's just one organization. And I think they said that before the COVID crisis, their maximum number of people that they ever served in a year was like 6,000, something like that, which is a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. But there are a lot of people in the music industry. So I'm just wondering, you know, if if we had an opportunity, I'm I'm always looking for silver linings and sort of what we can do next, learning what we have learned during this time. Do you guys think that we should be investing more in some kind of an organization in the country that could help specifically with exactly that sort of thing, like creating more mental health support groups, small groups where people can just get together and talk. I mean, to me, that's like a no brainer. That seems like something we should definitely do. Yeah. Music Cares is such a great organization, but it's not preventative in a sense. Like it's not getting to the root before it becomes a crisis. That's just not their focus. Yeah, you've fallen apart. Like that's the place to go. Yeah, got you, right? But I'm I'm thinking about sort of the preventative, especially as I work with a lot of young up-and-coming artists who are just getting started. How can we kind of have more conversation and and an actual like access to therapy? And not just for musicians, but touring crew. We know there's such high suicide rates for the sort of destabilized lifestyle that is a touring musician. And then along with the touring front person, there's, you know, there's band members, there's lighting, there's crew, there's, there's so many people that go into these tours. And a lot of them, when they get off the road, and right now we're seeing a lot of struggle in, in that community because they're, they're all supposed to be touring, you know, this summer and into the fall. And those tours are getting systematically canceled and pushed back. And it's hard for people to know when and how they'll ever, you know, be able to get back on the road and, and make a living. And so we were thinking about this last year when we saw a number of our friends from the sort of touring world struggling with mental illness. And then we saw a number of people dying from suicide. And we started an organization called Tour Support, which is really very simply just about making sure that people on the road have access to therapy. And so that they can, you know, log in and have access to therapy while they're on the road. And then when they get off the road, and just trying to create these preventative ways. Of course, now that all the tours are being canceled, we are having to sort of shift some of what it is that we're going to do. And it's, it's a small organization and we're just getting started. But we really felt the call that our industry needs to have more than just one or two organizations. There should be lots of options and opportunities. And there should be artists talking about this elephant in the room to the point where they're insisting that if you know John Legend goes out on the road for three months that he's buying these therapy packages for his entire team and that everyone has access to it if they want it. 
so that we we create those models of, of what a good responsible you know and then there's also you know issues i think with a lot of recording studios there's not a single woman that i know who's a writer or a producer who hasn't been sexually assaulted in a recording studio setting and yet when's the last time you've been in a studio and seen just a simple sign with a phone number on it that was saying, these are the rules in this room. You are not allowed to touch somebody else or assault them or harass anyone. And if you feel that you have been called this number, our business could come up with that. Jody Gershon, like, you know, they, they're paying for these sessions. And yet for some reason, even though we know it, they keep, a lot of it's been kept so hidden because of liability and big companies. And there's, you know, there's these big music companies that don't really want to unearth a lot of these issues. Unfortunately, I think we're still in the very quiet phase of wanting to unearth it without actually having truth and reconciliation. But I don't know how you can move forward with better practices until you call a spade a spade and unearth the sort of pain and suffering that happens amongst our community. So I think the first thing is a little more truth telling, a little more like acknowledging what's happened. And then I do think we need more solutions and more leaders to step up and and start to say we're going to put money and time and energy towards making it a safer place for for everyone. Hi, one of the things I've encountered that I'm curious about your take on is the question in some ways of of almost like responsibility in that, you know, even if we were to design the most effective data-driven powerful interventions to deliver to tours while they were on the road before they were on the road to be able to support them in a preventive way, it's like Who's responsible for that? Who's, is it the promoters? Is it the management companies? Is it the labels? Is it the artists themselves, right? And I think there's this weird sort of passing of the buck almost, or maybe not even that, but just there isn't a clarity of, of who should be responsible to be able to invest in those things for the benefit of the crew members and the artists and all the people that are on. Yeah. Well, I think it has to start with leaders who can afford to fund it. So I think if you, you know, I think John Legend's tours, he's committed to paying for those on, on the road for people. I think people like, you know, Paul McCartney and Coldplay and all the artists you're seeing on these global citizen festival, like it should just become a common practice and they should start to share that this is how we do it. I think we, we obviously have a really good partner in Live Nation. Michael Rapino is the first person to give us a big donation towards tour support so the more we get sort of promoters and, you know, recommending this, look, you should, don't forget to budget this for your tour. But I also think we can fundraise. So for some of the younger acts that are going out that want to do this, who can't quite afford it yet, that there are funds there that they can apply and somebody can easily sort of give them that package. But, you know, because it's new and it's early, it's got a lot of that, like, we've got stuff to figure out. But having been in sort of the philanthropic space my entire life, I, like, I think we have to be prepared to sort of make mistakes and mess up sometimes, but to keep trying and to put more efforts towards it. Just like entrepreneurs, you know, like we fail and we make mistakes, we fail fast. The same thing applies when you're trying to solve these issues. We need a lot of people not to be afraid to step up and to take responsibility for it. And I usually you get some help when there's a coalition. And then, you know, we can use every, every trick in the book from trying to get people on board through the goodness of their heart to shaming people when they aren't doing the right things. I have no problem shaming people. Always effective. You know, but I, I keep shaming people about the music studios. I'm like, how can you not take care of these young artists that you're putting into these rooms 
Like you're paying for them, record labels and publishing companies. And there are 19 year old songwriting, you know, you want to know why only 12% of songwriters are women and only 2% of producers are women. And that's data that came out of USC, Annenberg, Stacey Smith's whole study on, you know, where women are in the music business. It's really in large part because so many young women get in those studio settings. If they get invited to the room at all, without having to go through a guy or another guy to get in the room. Once they're there, they're being hit on, texted, tweeted. You know, there's a lot of alcohol and drugs in a lot of these studio settings and people are not safe. And it's just until we kind of scream about that and talk about it and have the industry leaders of every publishing company and every record label come together to solve that and say from here on out, if we're putting that studio session together... We're making everyone who goes sign a piece of paper that very simply promises that they will not engage in any of this kind of behavior. But nobody's willing to do it because I think they're afraid, you know, liabilities, this is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's the, it's the music business. It's got a lot of baggage. And I wish, I'm, I, I'm just going to, you know, the more we have these conversations, the more we write about it and get journalists to talk about it and people are willing to share their stories. I think hopefully within the next year to 10 years, we see a lot of improvement. I've been waiting for a long time for mental health to get a seat at the table in the industry, you know, and I've begun to see that in Nashville where some of the labels are, I would say, giving me a seat at the table, meaning they want to talk about things. We did a thing this year called New Artist Boot Camp or Prehab. We call it prehab because we thought you don't need to go to rehab. So we had like 60 young artists from all the different labels in town just to kind of do a pilot program for a whole day talking about things that they need to be aware of, including sexual harassment and all these things and warning signs and just things that will help them along the way. And we just found that to be really a, a good starting point. And one of the things I've found that is the most effective is when the artists who've gotten help go to their record labels and tell them, and tell them that you spend more on photo shoots for each artist than you do on mental health. What if you were to invest that in their mental health? And they've actually said that. So I'm, I'm Finding some, you're, you're right, it's a long road, but some breakthroughs here and there when, especially when artists go back to their label and say, this is more important than vocal lessons for me. And if you, on a strictly monetary thing, if you keep me a healthy, I'm going to be an artist for you for a long time. And let's work together on that. So I believe it's beginning to at least in Nashville, I can see the hints of it and the invitations to talk to staff and to talk to AR folks and to the people next to the artist to let them know that the more you help them, the more everybody wins, particularly the artist for their own hearts and souls and families. And I mean, I think what we're all talking about here is there's a little bit of a precedent in the sort of recovery, narcotics, anonymous, alcoholics, anonymous recovery stories, because there was a time when it was absolutely stigmatized to talk about drugs or alcohol. Even in the world of rock and roll, you would never, people weren't admitting that 
and now, you know, you can go on tour and you have backstage AA meetings, you know, backstage NA meetings on the road, warp tour and various things like that. So I do feel like there's a pathway that shows that we can overcome this, but I'm with you, Ty. I think it needs some strong leadership and it needs a whole bunch of people to just stand up and say, nope, we're not doing this anymore. And this is how we're going to do this. It's interesting because I'm reading some of the notes in the chat and a lot of young people are saying, well, you know, at Berkeley, most of the songwriting department are women. I just graduated from Belmont University as a songwriting major for what it's worth. Approximately 80% of Belmont songwriting majors are women. And that's great. That's, we find there are a lot of women who want to be songwriters and who are getting those degrees when they get into the actual music business. And this is data that came out. You can look it up at USC Annenberg, Stacey Smith. Out of the top most, I don't know if it's like the top 500 or 1,000 songs, the most popular sort of money-making part of this business, only 12% of songwriters are women. Not that they're not out there. It's not that women aren't songwriters. It's that they're not getting the bulk of the access. They're not getting the co-writes in the room. They're not getting invited as often. And when they do, it's a casting couch in the same kind of television and film business that, you know, has kept on to this day. And until we sort of make it a safer place, I think, unfortunately, we found there's a lot of young women coming in as songwriters. They just don't stay and they're not getting the credits that they deserve. And that's just one piece of it. I mean, alcohol and and drugs is another one. You know, we lost Mac Miller and I've heard of instances where managers were the ones like going out and getting the drugs and the alcohol for their clients that, that, you know, so managers, there is no sort of like management one-on-one class and there's not really a book about it. But, you know, there needs to be training, proper training, because a manager has a fiduciary duty and a, and a real responsibility with an artist, especially with a young artist, to make sure that if they see some behavior that is not looking healthy or good, that they're not enabling it. And having been a manager of an artist who is really struggling with drugs and alcohol, I can say it's, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn quickly because I've never been there. And I didn't know what enabling meant. And even just by like continuing to be a manager of that act, I was enabling their behavior. And that's three interventions later. It, I finally woke up and, and had a lot to learn from a lot of much smarter people than, than I had been. But man, that, it's so hard because it really is. There's, there's a part of the business that just doesn't talk about it, doesn't want to say it, doesn't want to, doesn't want to acknowledge it. And there's still, I think there's still a real sense that like the geniuses and the brilliant ones, yeah, that's just, it goes with the territory, you know? Well, I heard a lot of like, well, yeah, but you know, that was Tom Petty, you know, print, like all of them, all the great ones, you know, that's, that's, you want to be a great manager, you got to deal with that. But it's like, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I'm not saying people have to be perfect in this business. And I, and I expect, you know, maybe there's like a higher, I can't wait to see more of the studies that we could get some real data and understand like, what are we talking about here? But it is an interesting part of the business. And you find different business managers, different lawyers, different people want to deal with it very differently. But a lot of people, when they're dealing with a client who's struggling in that situation, do not want to talk about it. Not openly. They don't want to admit it. There's fiduciary issues. There's responsibility issues. And I think that's holding us back. I think it's really like causing a lot of problems for how we help those people. Yeah. I feel like we could go on that topic for about a thousand years. My husband always used to say that rock and roll is difficult because it's the only business where you're encouraged to drink on the job. So it puts people already in a different situation than you'd normally find with many results, you know, that are not positive. 
That was Great Skulls by Boats. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Al Andrews of Porter's Call, Dr. Chaim Newman of Thrive, Ty Sticklorius of Friends at Work, and Alana Zivkovich of Work. Alana, we're running out of time, so I want to bring you back into the conversation a little bit. One of the things that you list on your blog that I really wanted you to talk about a little bit is just called Play the Long Game. And I love that because, you know, probably for me, one of the hardest things about this COVID crisis is that for the first three weeks, I would grab my phone or whatever and look at the news to see, like, have they come up with a plan yet? What's the plan? What's the plan? And now it's like seven weeks in, I'm like, eh, there's no plan. You know, we don't have a plan. So, so, you know, it's so difficult to have no plan and to have no moment where you're like, okay, well, I know by this date, this is going to be over and we're going to get back to, you know, something a little bit more normal. So can you explain what you mean by play the long game? I sure can. Yeah. And the term was coined by a dear friend of mine who writes and speaks on the topic of the long game and what playing the long game entails is thinking really long-term in your relationships, in your life about what type of impact you want to have, how you want to be remembered, what type of stories do you want your grandkids to tell about you? And so in the current context and sort of the COVID sense of the word, you know, most of us will get through this experience having been inconvenienced, having learned a lot of things, having, you know, had some things be very scary and anxiety provoking, but most people will get through it okay. I want to be respectful because that is not true for everyone. There's devastating consequences right now, physically, economically, et cetera. But many people will get through this okay. And so the encouragement there in terms of playing the long game during COVID is rather than worrying so much, you wake up on a Tuesday and worrying so much about, okay, like what's going to happen to the bottom line of my business today? And um, what do I need to produce, produce, produce right this second? It's like, no, take a step back. Who do I want to be during this crisis? Who do I want to be for those around me, for my clients, for my vendors, for my friends, for my family, in my community? You know, we heard great stories about people Venmoing their hairstylist a hundred bucks a week during the crisis just to be that person because they can and the hairstylist can't, right? And so it's really asking that question of when I look back on this, you know, in 20 years, what do I want the chapter heading to be of this time for me? Do I want it to be one where I learned and where I grew and where I gave back where I could? Or do I want it to be one where I just freaked out and got real greedy and like conservative about every choice I made and like, you know, hid in the closet? And that's hard because some days we want to be greedy and hide in closets. That's okay. That's all part of the human condition. But big picture, think beyond it, like helicopter up way up here and think beyond and then reverse engineer it and use that future self to figure out, okay, well, then what can I do today? You know, what's in my locus of control, which is small. So much right now is outside of our locus of control. So like you, you know, we were like consuming the news every day and really, you know, trying to predict what was going to happen. And now we're like, eh, they'll tell us when we can go to the movies again. <laughs> like It's fine. But rather than doing that, really look at what's in my internal locus of control. Where can I be, show up and be that positive person that I hopefully want to be that contributor. That's what we mean by playing the long game. And folks that have that perspective right now seem to be, surfing the waves a a little bit better for obvious reasons. I love that point. Thank you for that. That's so great. I think that's spot on. I wish more big companies were were taking that approach. 
I know there's sort of the economic bottom line. We can all cut costs right now if we want to, but I think it's a much better long game plan to do what you can to like the people, the sort of CEOs who are taking their salaries and, you know, not furloughing workers, like if they can afford to, and you can find out creative ways to really take care of your people. I think people yeah. need to be, and workers need to be prioritized yeah. more than they have been in the past versus bottom line and revenue. And that's such a good point. And I'm going to Venmo my hairstylist right now. I love that. <laughs> yeah. A slight like twist on that. What does this make possible? Some of the conversations we've been having with company owners is let's imagine that this situation is a gift. 100% it's a gift just made for you. Write the narrative. Tell me the narrative from that perspective. If this is a gift, then tell me why. You know, And for some of them, it's like, oh, wow, I had these really aggressive growth goals and we were on target, but now I see we're not going to hit them. And maybe that's great because I can actually spend more time with my family, which has been sort of fun. <laughs> so it's like, there is no such thing as a good or a bad event that doesn't exist. It's just, what do we do with it? You know, so really your 86 year old friend has learned a few things in her, his or her years. <laughs> like, what do we do with it? That's all that we can is what do we do with it? Alana, along those lines, you remind me of something. In, in times like these, I tend to talk to old people. I'm old, but older than me. And I was talking with this 86-year-old friend, and I asked her, like, what do you think of? What do you pray? Whatever, however you want to say it. When you face difficulty like that and things that you don't know what to do with. And she says, I have this statement slash prayer and it's, what does this make possible? This whole thing, what does it make possible? And to me, I, I loved that sentence because it's not like, a, let's deny this and be happy, but it's like, what does this make possible? What does this open the door to? And I can even see right now, as we're talking together, what this makes possible is a greater emphasis on mental health. A lot of people are talking about it now, and a lot of people are struggling with it and seeking help. And, and so I think just connected with that, taking the long view is also looking at what's going to come out of this, because something is, and I think it's going to be important. Now, going back to what you were saying just about the, I think that the increased emphasis on mental health coming out of all this, I think if we don't do that as an industry... We run a really dangerous risk, right? That the, the emotional and the psychological aftermath of this entire period, which is not going to end immediately. And so however many more weeks and days and months of this, it's going to perpetuate for, right? The psychological aftermath is really real. And we know there's going to be a push in the industry to get people right back on the road and get tours right back out there you know, in spring 2021 or whenever it is that, you know, touring will open up properly again and to just rush people out. And we know the intensity of the pacing and the toll that that takes on artists and crew members who are out on the road. And I think if we don't pay that added attention and that additional thought towards mental health on the road, not only will you have people struggling with the same mental health struggles that touring already has presented over the last years and decades, but that'll be coupled with all of the psychological trauma that people are going to be carrying from this acute period that we've all just gone through. And there has to be an increased emphasis in the next short while, not just on coping with the mental health now, but on preparing on what an adapted new version of touring will look like in the end of 2020 or 2021 or whenever it starts up again, 
in a way that really acknowledges the mental health impact to prevent it from really, really doing serious damage to people. I agree. And this is, I, I, I think, you know, the first thing that happened in this crisis was people helping people financially, helping people that lost their jobs. Let's, let's take care of that and helping people who are sick. And now I find myself raising my hand a lot going, okay, we're getting help to those people in lots of different ways. But now there's another thing that really needs help and their emotional health. And I, I think you're right. The idea, and I think we have a little time to try to push in and talk to folks. And right now I'm playing the small game and that is talking to artists who are in charge of the buses, <laughs> like who have nine buses that go with them. And so let's talk about some healthy practices, but it's got to be bigger than that. But it may start with some people, you know, that there used to be a thing or there still is. I hate that line, that Las Vegas line, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas, because that used to be how people talked about tours. And that's just offensive to me because that means people get hurt, people get abused, women get treated poorly, but hey, it happens on the road. And, and I, th I think that can change. But it's going to take a lot of work. For people of self-care, it's like, I take care of myself when I'm at home. I'm on the road. I eat pizza after the show at 2 a.m. every single night for six weeks straight. And it's like, but it stays on the road. But the reality is the damage to your body does not actually stay on the road. That comes home with you. And the damage to our relationships when we neglect them because we're on the road and it stays on the road comes home with us. And I agree with you. You're right on. I have a friend who, who I'm encouraging who is actually coming up with a, a kind of a plan for the road that deals with both sexual harassment and health and things like that, and is working on a thing where if you're going on a tour, everybody that's on the tour, whether you're the electrician, whether you put together the set, whether you're sound, has to take a course. It may be an all-day course. They, everybody has to take a course. And if you take that course, you get a stamp. Your tour is stamped. I won't say the name because they haven't done it yet, but let's, let's call it like your tour is stamped as a healthy tour. And people have signed a document that says, here are the rules for the road that I'm going to follow and that I'm pledging to follow. And that's in the works now. And I'm pretty excited about it. But I think that's going to need to expand just because, you know, what stays on the road, it's just, it's, that's just old and that's stupid. I know a few artists who have decided that the road is going to be a healthy place. It's going to be a place where I'm going to be a good father and I'm going to be a good husband and I'm not going to do what I used to do or what I did when I was younger or what other people, I'm going to try to be an honorable person and a healthy person all the way around on the road. And that's beginning to bleed out to a few younger artists and hopefully It'll get traction. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And also it's so, t it's from the top down, right? Like we see this and I'm sure Alana knows this, like working with so many organizations, like whoever's at the top sort of laying the foundation and sort of it, it all trickles down. Yeah. So if you've got the main artist showcasing that this, this is going to be a healthy tour, I'm going to take care of myself and all of us are going to follow suit and we're going to have a, you know, a dry tour, whatever it is that people want to do. I think, 
I see it with John Legend. I see it with others. It's like whoever gets to sort of set the tone. And that's why a lot of the young artists I work with, I'm trying to teach them like, look, you have a ton of responsibility. You're, you're a 19 year old, you're a 21 year old, and you're bringing 30 people out on the road, but you're the boss and we've got to get you healthy. And so one thing that, that I think everyone can do, and a lot of people are writing in the notes while well, I'm just a musician and I'm struggling, I think, and this is just me, but I think meditation is a civic duty in this time. And if you're not using calm or headspace or going to, in my case, I do Kundalini meditation. By the way, I get it. Like it doesn't work for some people are like, um, that's not me. And it took me a long time to finally get into practice. But even just a little 10 minutes a day through one of these apps that are now so accessible and we work with headspace and the founder is now giving that to a lot of people right now for free. So even if you don't want to pay, you don't want to subscribe, like there's access to a lot of these tools that can help you just spend 10 minutes centering yourself. And you'll find that the rest of your day is so much better. And that you start to listen to what is really going on and processing that instead of staying constantly distracted by tech or, you know, Twitter or whatever it is. And so we've started to institute like, real practices for people. I mean, obviously therapy is great. I want everyone I know to do therapy. I want everyone I know to sort of find their tools and their tricks for staying well. But I really have found that like, if you, if you don't have anything, start with calm headspace, rama.tv or rama TV, go online, Google search meditation, and you can find a lot of ways to just tune into your best self and like process and it can really make a huge, huge difference in your life. I want to be one of your artists. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for doing this. That I think that's a great place to leave this. I would like to say if, if we're looking at this as a gift, then you guys are definitely my gift for today. This conversation was totally a gift. So thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. And thanks to everyone who's watched and tune in again on Wednesday. Take care. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Marnie Stern, Boats, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was recorded via Zoom and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Stay safe, wash your hands, and I'll see you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice cream?